is a privilege to be back here with you, preaching for you this morning. Amen. Pastor Brian uh, sends his greetings. He does. He and Tara are out of town this week. He asked if I'd step in this morning. This morning's sermon is coming from Isaiah chapter 7. Amen. Isaiah chapter 7. This is a passage that we frequently turn to in this season, the season of Advent. If you will, please rise as we read our scripture for this morning. And the text reads, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ahaz is the king of Jerusalem, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But as Ahaz said, or but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall encourage and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The word of God to the people of God. Amen. Amen. This is a passage we frequently turn to during the season of Advent because of uh, its use in Matthew. Matthew uses this passage to present sort of a theological lens for how we understand Jesus. A reflection that we return to time and time again each year. You know, it's, it's a funny thing, really. That name Emmanuel. God with us. Yes. It holds so much significance for us in Christianity, doesn't it? There's so much theological power, so much richness in that one name. Amen. Emmanuel. God with us. We sing songs about it. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. It is the lens through which we understand what Jesus offers to us. This intimate, this unique, this connection to God. Emmanuel. God with us. And yet the funny thing about it is that nowhere else does Jesus actually get called Emmanuel. I mean, really, it's uh, just here in Matthew. And even here the text says that uh, the angel commands Joseph and Mary to name Jesus Jesus, and that's the name by which Jesus is known throughout the rest of the story. It's fascinating that for a name that is so theologically significant for us as Christians, it does not reappear elsewhere in the New Testament. There are certainly allusions to it here and there. But we don't necessarily get people walking up to Jesus and calling him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, will you perform a miracle for us? Emmanuel, will you teach us? Emmanuel, answer this question. What must I do to enter the kingdom? None of that. I mean, it seems like the only reason why Matthew is citing the Septuagint of Isaiah here is to connect Jesus' birth, Jesus' virgin birth particularly, to the prophets. And so how is it that this name, Emmanuel, comes to be such a significant lens for us to understand Jesus? There's so much power in that name. 
I mean, names are significant, aren't they? Yeah. You know, we, we take the choosing of a name very seriously, don't we? When we name a child, we want that name to have significance. A name is not just uh, a word that we use to identify someone. A name usually has meaning. Yeah. It, it's, it's a meaning we want to attach to that person's identity, to who they are in this world. And you know, one, one of the unique things about names, particularly in English, you know, in, in North America, in our context, English is just a funny language to begin with. You know, it's sort of a combination of languages. And so our names, oftentimes the meanings are veiled in other languages. You know, for so many of us, our families, we go back so many generations, we start getting different languages. So the names that get passed down in our families oftentimes have meaning in another language. In fact, I had a, a teacher one time tell me that English is kind of like the language that's beats up other languages in dark alleys and rummages through their pockets. I mean, seriously, you look at the kinds of words we have. It could be from German, could be from French, could be Latin-based. You know, there, there's a few that have Semitic roots. We just use words from all over the place. And so we all have names that have meaning, but oftentimes we have to look back into other languages to find that. You know, my name is Nicholas. Well, it comes from the Greek. Nikaeoleos, conqueror of the people. But we wouldn't recognize that in English. We have to go back to another language. Or uh, the name William, it's, it's German, from uh, the word will and the word helm to desire security or to desire peace or safety. But we have to go back to another language to get that. When we hear William in our, in, in our context, we just hear a name. It has meaning, but that meaning is veiled by another language. And what we have to understand is when we look at names in the biblical text, those, the meaning of those names are not necessarily veiled for the Hebrew readers. In fact, names are so significant in the Bible, they oftentimes uh, foreshadow or, or in some ways illustrate the significance of a character in the story. So we take, for example, Abraham, the father of the multitudes. The name means or the father of the peoples. And the thing is that for Hebrew readers, that name isn't vague. They know what that means. You come across the name Abraham, Father multitudes. It'd be like me calling, you know, calling someone, hey, Father multitudes. We, we think that sounds a little strange to us, I suppose. But it was very plain for them. Or when, when Abraham first shows up on the scene, Abraham's name is not Abraham. Abraham is called Abram, right? In Genesis chapter 12. Well, Abram means exalted father. And here is the uh, unique narrative quality to this. Does Abraham, does Abraham have any children at this point in the story? No. So can you be an exalted father if you have no children? You see, the story begins, and Abram's name clues us in to one of the challenges that the story of Abram is going to address, that of lineage, where we talk about uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And we hear two names, Cain and Abel, but those names have meaning in Hebrew. The name Cain means weapon. The name Abel means fleeting breath, and it's like a vapor, like, uh, like if you're outside on a cold winter day, and, and you breathe and you see that vapor, in your breath, and it disappears so quickly, that fleeting breath. And, and we, when we read this story, and instead of reading the name Cain, we read the word weapon, and instead of reading the name Abel, we read the, the, the word fleeting breath, all of a sudden this name has, this story has a very different significance, doesn't it? It's not just about two brothers who couldn't get along, is it? This is about what happens when we have a world that has fragile human lives, and weapons living side by side, and all of a sudden we can really relate to that, can't we? Yes. yes, all of our discussions about violence and school shootings. 
all of our discussions about uh, nations, principalities, powers that are willing to sell weapons into war-torn regions where life is remarkably fragile. All of a sudden, this story connects. And that's the thing. In the biblical text, these names all have meaning that is not vague. It is very real. When we read the story of Cain and Abel, try reading it sometime. Instead of the word Cain, just read weapon and see how that changes the way we view the story. And what we find is uh, all throughout the ancient worlds, um, in the ancient Near East, there were ways that they would assign names. You know, we've, we've got names written in cultures all across the ancient Near East. It seems like people would write their names on anything. You know, they write their names on stones or on tablets or like etched into the stall in the men's room. I mean, we get their names everywhere. <laughs> but here's what we find. In these names in the ancient world, they almost always have the name of the god that that person worshipped in them. Because names were not, uh, names oftentimes were statements about what people believed about their gods. And it doesn't matter if we're in a Hebrew culture, if we're in an Akkadian culture, or a Ugaritic culture, we find this same thing. That's why all throughout the Bible, so many names have that word El in them. El, it's Hebrew for God. And so all of these names are statements about what people believe to be true about God. So, for example, if you ask God to give you a child, and God gives you that child, you might name that child, God gives. Natan El, Nathaniel. Or that's why we have so many names that have the word Yah in them. Yah, short for Yahweh. You pray to Yah. Yahweh. Yahweh answers and delivers and gives. You might say, Yonatan. God gives. We might say, Yeshua. God gives salvation. God brings salvation. Each of these names are theological statements about what people believe to be true about their God. In 1 Samuel, when Hannah cries out to, in the name of God, for a child, and God delivers, she responds by giving that child a name that is a theological statement that she understands to be true. That is to say, El is his name. Samuel. Samuel. In names across the ancient Near East, these were theological statements that we believe to be true about our God. Unshakable truths. And so, my friends, when we come here to the book of Isaiah, when we come to this passage in the seventh chapter that we read year after year in this season of Advent, we find, once again, another name. But this name occurs in a context in which there is now a theological question. We could say that the people of Isaiah chapter 7 are facing a bit of a theological crisis. Where is God? Where is God? Is he going to show up to protect us? Where is he? You see, what we have to understand is that in the ancient world, when two nations go to war, it wasn't just their nations that were fighting. It was their gods. And the nation was victorious. They assumed that meant that their god was more powerful. Their god showed up. And this is why uh, what we, we see in the covenant when... Uh, in Torah, when God says, you will be my people and I will be your God, the people of God live according to the principles of God. Their lives are supposed to reflect the values of God, but in turn, God says he will be there to protect them. He will be there to take care of them. But you see, my friends, in Isaiah chapter 7, there's a particular problem. It is a very strong army. And this particular army is approaching Jerusalem. And as this army gets closer and closer, it is increasingly look like people are not going to be able to stop this army from taking Jerusalem. 
And so, whenever we face challenges in our lives, whenever we face trials or tribulations, and we come to the sudden realization that we are not strong enough to make it through on our own, who do we call out to? We call out to our God. We do this in our lives all the time, do we not? Yes, my friends. When trouble comes, we call on our God. When disaster strikes, we call on our God. Sometimes when we realize that I do not have the strength to make it through this day, that has a remarkable power to bring me to my knees before my Creator. That's enough, my friends. And so that is what people are doing in Isaiah chapter 7. There is an army coming. Who is going to deliver them? And they can't see it. Because as this army gets closer and closer, they can't see how they're going to make it out. They can't see how is God going to deliver them. And so there's a bit of a theological question here. Where is God? And so with this superior army approaching, God sends a prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah only says, he says, do not fear. God will be there. He'll protect you. Well, of course, we have the soldiers all shaking in their armor. Of course, we have King Ahaz, who's afraid of this army. And Isaiah just says, don't fear. God is with you, and you will see it. And so Isaiah says that he'll give a sign. A young woman will bear a child, and she will call him Emmanuel. She will call him God is with us. Do you catch this? In a moment when the king is scared, in a moment when the soldiers are shaking inside of their armor, God says, do not fear and I will give you a sign. In the midst of this situation, which you cannot see how you are going to be delivered, in which you cannot see what the way out will be, in the midst of this, you will find one unnamed young woman in the ancient world. And she is going to name that child, God is with us. While everyone, while the kings, while the soldiers are asking, where is God? This young unnamed woman, she's going to say, no, God's still with us. They don't know how they're going to be delivered. They don't know how they're going to make it out. But this woman, she's going to declare something she knows to be true. I know my God is still with me. You see, my friends, the very name, Emmanuel, that is a theological confession. And she knows that her God will always be with her. She knows that no matter what the situation may look like, God does not abandon his people. She knows that she may not see how God is going to deliver her, but God does not leave or forsake his people. She knows that though the situation may seem dire around her, God will never leave her alone. Oh, mighty king, supposed leader of the people. You want a son? Look at this young, unnamed woman. She might not see how God is going to deliver her, but she is still going to proclaim that God is with her. Amen. She may not see it yet, but keep watching. Because God's about to do a remarkable thing. Turn and tell someone, God is with us. God is with us. She may not know uh, how her God is going to deliver her, but she knows that he will be there. Because you see, my friends, the simple truth of scripture is that from creation to the consummation of all of human history, there is one thing that God wants to do. He wants to be with us. Turn and tell someone, God is with us. When God first creates this world, where does he want to be? He wants to be with people. Turn and tell someone, God is with us. This is the reason why when he walks through the cool of the garden, he's walking in the place where Adam and Eve walk. Turn and tell someone, God is with us. No matter how far I may, turn, I may run from God, where is he? No matter how dark this world may look around me, where is he? What kind of relationship does God want to have? Where does he want to be in relationship? My friends, our God wants to be with us from the very beginning to the very end. When God gives Torah on Mount Sinai, there's one fundamental truth. God wants to be with us. When God is speaking through the prophets, there's one fundamental truth. God wants to be with us. 
And my friends, even when we turn to the final pages of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, yes. what image do we get? Mm, when John sees the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, you know, you know what John notes? He says that he did not see a temple there. Do you know why? Where is God? God is with us, my friends. Here's what John says. Then I saw the new heavens and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride before, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. My friends, from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture, there is one thing that we can rely on. God wants to be here with us. He always has and always will want to be with us. The challenge is that things don't always look that way on this side of heaven, do they, my friends? Things might not always feel that way this side of heaven, and that is where we find ourselves sometimes. But we have to know that God wants to be here in our midst with us. God wants to walk through our times of joy and our times of sorrow right alongside of us. In our times of celebration and in our times of sorrow. Amen. And so, my friends, when Matthew draws upon Isaiah 7:14, he isn't just making a theological statement that Jesus is the incarnation of God. That is true, and we teach that. But he's saying more than this, my friends. He is summoning an ancient theological tradition. One that says that even though things may not look like it now, even though I cannot see the way that God is going to deliver me now, I know that God is where? With us. Amen. Amen. We know that God does not abandon his people. We know that God does not leave his people. It may have been a long time since I've heard the voice of a prophet, but I know that what I'm about to see is going to remind me that God still is walking with us. My friends, even though it has been a long time since I've seen the fire and the smoke of Sinai, what I'm about to see, what I'm about to witness will remind me that God still hears his people. That God still cares about his people. My friends, for Matthew, God is not just about to deliver people from a literal army. For Matthew, God is about to deliver people from something far greater. You see, in Isaiah, they face the threat of an army. They face the single isolated threats that raise questions. But we, in humanity, we face some things much greater. We face some things that threaten to make us think that we are separated from our God, don't we? Emmanuel, God is with us. I might not see how you're going to get me through, but Emmanuel, God is with us. I might not see how you are going to deliver me right now, but Emmanuel, God is with us. You see, my friends, we are in the season of Advent. A season in which we remember and reflect on what it's like to wait for our God. To wait for our God to show up. Advent is a season when, when, when we remember what it's like to look around and see the darkness in this world. To see evil in this world. And to wait for our God to show up. Sometimes in, in Advent as, as we look around and we wait for, for our Savior. We realize the evil and the darkness is not just in this world, is it? Sometimes I find it in me too. And I start asking, how long, O oh Lord? When, oh Lord, when are you going to show up, God? I need you to show up for me right now, God. Advent is a season which we remember what it is like to wait. 
And that's what this name, Emmanuel, is all about. That name is first uttered in a time when they didn't see the way out. When they didn't see the end of the valley. When they didn't see the end of the journey that they were on. They didn't know how God was going to deliver them. But all those centuries ago, that one unnamed young woman, Emmanuel, God is with us. I might not see how you're going to get, it through, get me through, but Emmanuel, God is with us. Because <coughs> you see, my friends, sometimes it's hard to wait. Sometimes it's hard to look around because we get impatient. I mean, it's one thing when I walk through trials and, and I know there is an end in sight. Because that can give me the strength to persevere. I've only got a few more days of this. I've only got a few more weeks of this. But it's another thing when we're walking through valleys and we don't see the end. And we don't see how we're going to make it through. And it's in those moments when we need to claim that name, Emmanuel. God is with us. Because sometimes when I'm tempted to not see God in my life, I need to stop and claim that name. Emmanuel. God is with us. Sometimes when I'm standing at the crossroads of life and I'm about to enter into a new door, a new season, and I don't know what's on the other side, I need to claim that name. Emmanuel. God is with us. See, my friends, this name speaks power into a moment when we're not sure how God's going to get us through. This name declares something that we know is true in a moment when we don't always feel it. Because in this world, we don't always feel it. We don't. And that's when the name Emmanuel matters. Reminds us, God is with us. And there's one more thing I want to point out about this name, my friends. Did y'all notice the plural on the end? God is with us. Not necessarily God is with me. And I think there's a reason for that in Scripture. Because you see, my friends, some, sometimes I am tempted to view things as all about me, aren't I? Uh, sometimes my prayers are all about me. They are all about my problems, my life, my trials, and my tribulations. And sometimes I need to remember that God is with us. Sometimes, my friends, I become so focused on my little moment in life. And, and, and there's a lot of pain in that moment. Can I be honest? There is. And that is real. And we face real trials inside of those moments. But sometimes when I am focusing on that moment and I cannot see how God is going to get me out of this moment, I need to take a step back. And I need to take a look to the left of me. And I need to take a look to the right of me. And I need to see that God may be working around me in order to make a way for me. I need to see that God is working in my neighbors. To see that God is working in those who have come before me, the forefathers of the faith. And that God will continue working in the lives of those who come after me. To contextualize my moments. Because sometimes when I focus on that problem so much, it's strange how the only thing I manage to see is a problem, isn't it? And I need to take a step back and see that God is with us. I need to see God at work in your life. I need to see God at work in your life to encourage me when I'm moving through the trials. I think about the Psalms. You know, the St. Athanasius, he, he said that the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. The Psalms are prayers up to God. Uh, oftentimes I tell people that if, if, if you ever feel like in prayer, like, like you've grown stagnant, as if you do not have the words to say, I said, try praying some of the Psalms. 
Try praying someone else's words. Because that will force you to begin using new language to address God. It will force you to begin using new metaphors to address God. It's like with any relationship. Sometimes we fall into patterns. And over time I realize my relationship feels stagnant. It's not that it's bad. It's just it's not growing the way I thought it would. Well, why? Because I'm repeating the same things over and over again to my wife. And I need to grow my language. Grow the way that I... And so I encourage people, read Try praying through the Psalms. Force yourself to engage God in a new language. But here's the thing I find about the Psalms. Is, you know, sometimes when we pray the Psalms, we, you know, we pick our favorite song. We may pray Psalm, uh, Psalm 23, because we all like that one. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. And we may flip over to Psalm 119 and realize that's a bit too long. And we flip forward to Psalm 117 and we're like, that's more my speed, right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If we start in Psalm 1, and we work our way through the Psalter, the Psalms will actually take us on a journey. A journey that grows the way that we pray. A journey that grows the way that we address God. You see, the Psalms tend to begin in lament. And there's a lot to lament about in this world, isn't there? There is. Voice those laments. Be honest to God. But as we move through the Psalms, what we will find is they gradually move us into a place of praise. Because the truth is that in this life, if we're going to be honest about the hardships, we can be honest about the blessings too, right? Yes. Well, here's the other journey they'll take us on. As we are moving from lament to praise, the Psalms tend to begin very individualistic. I, me, my problems, my trials, and my trials are real. But as we move through the Psalms, they move us not only into praise, but into community. Us. We. The way that God is working in our midst. My friends, we are one fellowship. We are not single fellowships. We are one fellowship. And we need to see God working in our lives as a community in order to remind ourselves sometimes in those times of trials that God is with us. I don't know what valley we are walking through today as individuals. I do not know what trials we are carrying on our hearts today as individuals. But this morning, as as we come to a close, as as we reflect, I want us to ask ourselves, what is God implanting in our hearts? What is the Holy Spirit impressing upon us this morning? What are we going to take away from this? I don't know the journey that you're on, the valleys that you are walking through in this moment. But I know that in those times, we can remember that name. Emmanuel. God is with us. I know that when we face troubled waters, we need to remember that name. Emmanuel, God is with us. Because I have that temptation when I'm in trials in life to not remember that God is with us. My friends, when we're in those moments, we need to walk alongside one another. Because it's us. The doors of the church are open. This is the moment for you to come. Hi, my name is Nicholas Wurst. I'm the executive minister here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. I just want to say thank you for listening. You can learn more about our church online at onefellowshipumc.org. And you can like us on Facebook to stay up to date with all the latest events in our community. 
Please feel free to share this message and others online so that more people can learn about what God is doing here at One Fellowship. Thank you, and God bless.